Father, we come before you cold but hungry and eager and desiring to hear from you, Father. So Lord, we, we do pray that uh, if the, well, there's no ifs with you, Father, we just want to ask that you'll fix the heater so that it'll warm up a little bit in here as we study. But beyond that, Father, I pray that you'd focus our attention on Jesus and captivate us, Lord, with your word. And draw us away from the flesh and the physical and, and any possible discomforts that we might observe you and learn from you and be more aware of you. Father, I know going into this, this is one of the most intense studies we've had so far. I'm excited about it. And I pray, Father, that you will reveal things to us, keep our eyes open, our hearts fresh and ready to hear from you. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We join with the angel chorus and the elders saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. We look forward, Father, when we sing that song of the redeemed gathered around your throne in heaven with joy and rejoicing, Lord, casting what crowns we have before you and praising you. Father, your word is a marvel. And your spirit, uh, such a blessing in how you teach us. So do so tonight again as we open up the pages of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll be in Revelation chapter 5. Location is very important in the book of Revelation. Location, that is knowing where we are as we study. In each progressive verse, always be aware of... Where we are. <laughs> Looks like the heater's rolling. Let's just pray it keeps going. Um, John will take you back and forth in the book of Revelation between earth and heaven. And one of the critical things in, in reading through this book and understanding it and knowing it is knowing where you are. So we're just going to let them work on the heater. <laughs> if it comes on, great. But John goes back and forth. And uh, there are many times, as the drama intensifies, we will spend a lot of time looking at what's happening on earth, Revelation 6 through 19, during that time of tribulation. But even then, there will be times when things are happening in heaven. You need to know where you are. Location is very important, so pay close, close attention to that as we go into each chapter. Now tonight, we remain in heaven. And tonight, the real drama begins. This is where the drama itself, the passion begins to truly unfold. Now you may say, wait a minute, Rick, we've been 13 weeks in the book of Revelation so far and you're telling us that the real drama is just beginning? Exactly. Revelation chapter 5 is where it all lays out. Over the uh, Christmas vacation, uh, we got to go down and see the, uh, the Nutcracker, Pacific Northwest Ballet's version of the Nutcracker down in Seattle. And Cheryl and I and the kids and Cheryl's mom went down there. We had a, had a great time when we got there. Corey thought it was all right, but as a 15-year-old, he said, Dad, there was just too much dancing. It's a ballet, son. This is what they do. But as we arrived, before the actual drama of the ballet began, several other things happened. First, we entered into the lobby. And there were people there, and they were handing out colorful candy, and there was a huge nutcracker that, there was, that was there to greet kids. The guy in a big nutcracker costume. And so the kids were introduced to this nutcracker who we would later see as the main character in this drama. And there were colorful posters and statues all around. And as we entered the main theater, we were also handed programs. We took those programs and we were treated to a massive colorful portrait of the nutcracker once we sat down that spanned the entire stage. But we had about 15 minutes or so before the drama began, and that's Revelation chapter 1. 
we were introduced to the main character of the book, Jesus Christ. The, the Lord is the one about whom this book is written. Remember that, that as we go through Revelation, it's all about Jesus. And there we were introduced to the main character. We picked up the program. You may remember it, Revelation 119 is the program of the book of Revelation. That divine outline that gives you the three-part outline of the book. We're already now into part three. That John would write the things that were yet to be, the things to come, where he says, after these things, write about this. And so, just like we waited for the ballet to begin, we read the background story of the Nutcracker to the kids. We listened as we were as things were being bumped around and moved around backstage, things were being prepared back there, and we watched the musicians enter, and they sat down in the orchestra pit and started to warm up. In the same way, Revelation 2 and 3 set the stage for the drama to come. They set the stage. We looked at all of church history, and our two gentlemen come in less than triumphant. So, hunker down, gang. <laughs> it's going to be a cold one tonight. But Revelation 2 and 3, similar. We saw the stage being set as we look at church history. First, the main character, Revelation 1. Then all of church history, Revelation 2 and 3. Then Revelation chapter 4, as we studied, the curtain was drawn back. The orchestra, when we went to see the Nutcracker Ballet, played the overture. The lights came down. The curtain opened up and revealed a lavish scene, a beautiful scene on the stage. And we were captivated momentarily before anything happened just by the stage itself. And that's what happens in Revelation 4. Everything is set. The stage is set. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And we're in awe, just experiencing, looking at this picture of heaven. But then chapter 5 hits us. And chapter 5 is where the drama begins. Verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The word book, let's get right into it, is the word in the Greek, biblion. It's where we get the word Bible. But it doesn't mean book in the way that we translate it or understand it. The word book is literally roll or scroll. The word biblion, anytime it's used, is talking about a scroll. That's the way they used to have books or, or read books in Jesus' day, in John's day. They were scrolls. And there are those who say that the key to understanding chapter 5 is this scroll. Beyond that, there are many who say the key to understanding God's entire plan for mankind is this scroll. If you understand this book, if you get this scroll, you get a wide-eyed picture of God's plan from Adam and Eve all the way to the very last moment that a person will draw breath. This scroll is incredibly important. Now in John's day, again, books or biblion, scrolls, were written in this form. They were 8 inch to 10 inch papyrus, sometimes they were vellum, written horizontally in 3 inch columns. They were usually rolled around a wooden dowel. Smaller books like Ruth or Jude would be written in a single scroll, just rolled together. Larger books like Genesis or Exodus would have taken up several scrolls. The book of Revelation itself would have been a scroll some 15 feet long by the time it was completely written. Typical scrolls now, and as we look at this, typical scrolls had a rough side and a smooth side. Often the writing was on the smooth side and then it was rolled up and the rough side would be to the outside of the scroll. Now this scroll is a very unique scroll and if you were in ancient real estate you would know right away what this scroll is. It would jump off the page and say, oh I've seen that before, I understand. You'd know right away this is a title deed. This scroll is a title deed. In fact, I believe it's, well, no, I'm not going to tell you what kind of title deed it is. Look in your Bibles at Jeremiah chapter 32. Flip over there just for a moment. Keeping your finger in Revelation chapter 5. Jeremiah 32. 
beginning at about verse 6. It tells us that Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. You may recall just, I believe it was last week or the week before, we were in, in our Leviticus study. Um, last Wednesday night, Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 28, talk about the right of redemption, that if you lose land, that you can have a relative buy that land. That's what's going on here. Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle is coming to you, the Lord told Jeremiah. Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Something to know right here with Jeremiah. Because God told him ahead of time, once his uncle arrived, Jeremiah knew this is what, something that God wanted him to do. This wasn't just about a relative saying, hey, will you buy my field for me? God wanted him to do this for a specific reason. Verse 8, Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and he said to me, Buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. It's cool how God will often confirm. He will confirm what he tells you. If he speaks to you, if he gives you insight, if he gives you a vision for something, he tends to confirm that from something else. He tends to give, give a word of confirmation after the fact. Well, going on, so I bought the field, which was at Anathoth, from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver, and I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. And then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. Then I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Baruch was the scribe who wrote for Jeremiah, or wrote with Jeremiah. He's the son of Maseah. In the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses, who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Skip down to verse 27. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Now skip to verse 37. Behold, he says, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, speaking of Israel. In my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will also put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it's a desolation, without man or beast. It's given into the hands of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. 
Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is told that this deed, which currently didn't mean much, it didn't, wasn't worth much, he was told that as God promised, the land will return to Israel. So Jeremiah purchasing this deed, this land was a picture of that. Interesting because Jeremiah was in prison at the time that he purchased this land. It was land that he couldn't go out and use. It was of no value to him. And with the Babylonian captivity going on at the time, it wasn't of value to any person in Jerusalem, any person in Israel. And yet God said, buy the land. Because I will restore the fortunes of the land at a time yet future. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 27 again. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Jeremiah purchased a title deed. It was signed out, it was rolled up in scroll form and put into a clay jar. It's the same kind of title deed we're looking at in chapter 5 verse 1. Flip back to Revelation 5. Now this title deed is very important, very special, very unique. You may notice that in verse 1 it tells us that it was held in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember that. It has writing not just on one side as in Jeremiah's scroll, Jeremiah's title deed. They write, wrote on it and rolled it up. This title deed has writing on the inside and on the outside. And this title deed is sealed not once but seven times with seven seals. Now, my mother-in-law knows how to send packages. If you've ever gotten a package from Sharon Morgan, and I just got to share this, Mom, because she would send this thing. Now that she's living next door, it's really nice. She just hands it to me. But when she would mail things to Cheryl in the past, I, literally it would take a wrecking crew to get the box open. It was incredible. And there was no way anything was going to get lost in the mail. There was more tape on those packages than there was package. So she knows how to seal something up. But we're talking about something very interesting. A, a deed here, a deed of trust, a title deed with seven seals on it. Meant to be kept sealed up for a period of time. Why? Why seven seals? Why seven times? Because this is a title deed that's held in foreclosure. This is a picture, and again, a real estate agent in Israel at the time reading this would say, Oh, I've seen this type of thing before. The Jewish people were very good about protecting property owners. And so what they would do if someone went bankrupt, if someone owned land and went bankrupt and their land or property went into foreclosure, here's what happened. The debt for the foreclosure would be written on the outside of the title deed, which was rolled up writing on the inside and on the outside. And then the title deed would be sealed seven times. Those seven seals represented seven years. And in those seven years, the person who owned that land would have seven years in which to redeem that land or buy it back or get a kinsman redeemer, like Jeremiah was for his cousin, get a kinsman redeemer who could buy the land back for them. When the land was purchased back, then the, deed, then the seals were broken and the deed could be opened back up. The deed could be returned to its original owner. This is a title deed held in foreclosure. Again, the debt was written on the outside of the scroll. The scroll was sealed seven times, showing, showing it was available for seven years to be redeemed. And this title deed that is in bankruptcy... Gang, I think the Bible is clear that it's the title deed that God originally gave man for planet Earth. This is the title deed of Earth. The title deed once held 
by Adam and Eve. The title deed once given to them, but what happened? Man became morally bankrupt, sin foreclosed, and literally we lost a farm. When we started out, when God created Adam and Eve, what was the first thing he did? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And I want you to track this very closely. This is a critical passage to understand in its literal sense. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5. Hebrews 2 verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Who are we talking about here? When you read this, what's your first guess as to who this is talking about? Anyone? Jesus. Jesus is the assumption that we make when we read this passage. But you may be surprised to find out that this is not talking about Jesus. This is not about the Lord. What the Hebrew writer is saying here, what he is pointing out here, he is not in this part of this passage. Now, Hebrews 1, 2, 3, it's all about proving Jesus. But in this small section, he makes a slight shift and he is not talking about Jesus. How do we know that? Keep a fingers in Hebrews chapter 2, a finger, or if you want to keep a fingers, that's fine too. And flip over to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. Book of Psalms. The eighth psalm, written by David, and this, this is where the quote in Hebrews comes from. Psalm 8, verse 3. David writes the following, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David lay under a canopy of stars, and as he lay out there that night, looking up at the majesty in the heavens, he reflectively began to pen this psalm. Now, just for your information, in case you didn't know, and in case you wondered, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years in length. That would be roughly 6 trillion miles. Now, traveling the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other end of the Milky Way galaxy, moving at that rapid pace. Amazing. There are also 100,000 million galaxies just like ours, which are at least 100,000 light years or miles long in the universe. Amazing. Overwhelming. The farthest galaxy we know of is 100 billion light years away and it's currently moving away from us at the speed of 200,000 miles an hour. Now David didn't have these uh, statistics to think about when he looked up at the heavens. He just saw the vast expanse and said, 
Lord, who am I that you would even think about me? He says, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man, that you care for him? David was not writing prophetically about Jesus. A lot of people assume he is, and when they read the Hebrews chapter, they say, well, yeah, it's Jesus, and, and he's talking. David wasn't. Now, that's not to say that the Bible's not about Jesus, and we're not trying to get humanistic here, but this is about man. And it's important that we understand this. Put this into perspective. Who am I that God, the omnipotent, fantastic, glorified God, who am I that He would care about me? I'm no bigger than a who down in Whoville. I am a nobody. I am a podunk little creature on a podunk little planet in a vast universe created by an awesome God who is bigger than everything created. How and why would He even think about me? Psalm 8 has been called the exaltation of man psalm. Where David expresses what any of us at any moment can express. How in the world can we imagine that a God of such majesty would take thought of little old us? And yet he does. He does. Now listen. If you translate Son of Man here or in Hebrews chapter 2 as a statement about Jesus as opposed to just about mankind, we miss out on two counts. We miss out twice. We misunderstand in two ways. Number one, we miss the absolute and amazing love of God for man. For if we're to say that Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 are about Jesus and not about man, if it's a prophecy about Christ and not talking about mankind, then we miss out on how amazing God's love is for us expressed in these words. David was saying, Lord, it's phenomenal that you would think of me, that you would love me. But the second thing we miss out on is the absolute and amazing love of God as man. That Jesus became man. That he put on human flesh. That he did become subjected. That he did become for a little while lower than the angels. That is the humanity of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. What's the point? The point is this. Going back to Hebrews chapter 2. In the beginning, lordship over creation was given to man. you recall this? Adam and Eve were given complete authority over the earth. Lordship was given to man and to mankind. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5 tells us, He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning about which we are speaking. So who did he subject the world to? God handed Adam and Eve the title deed to planet earth. How did he do it? When did he do that? Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. It tells us God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam, Eve, you're the rulers. You're in charge. Here is the title deed to earth. It is your planet. I am giving this to you. This was the original arrangement for mankind. This morning we talked a little, about, a little bit about the original arrangement, didn't we? Man and woman, equal, male and female, one before God, living before God, side by side, not one lording it over the other, no power struggles, just the couple, Adam and Eve, in the garden, living side by side. This was the original arrangement. Now listen to this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, tells us, For in subjecting all things to Him... He left nothing that is not subject to him. Which is an amazing thought. But look at the last line of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Let me ask this question. Who lost their position of authority? 
Jesus or man? Has Jesus lost his authority? Are all things yet, even though he may not be acting on it, does Jesus have everything in subjection to him? Yes. But does man? No. As I said before, we lost the farm. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 2 tells us Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, listen, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Everything is in subjection to the ultimate control and authority of Jesus. Paul says he returned to heaven after all things have been subjected. And Hebrews 2 verse 8 refers to someone to whom, quote, we do not yet see all things subjected. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 tells us Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, God put all things in subjection under his feet. So does that sound like Jesus lost that? Lost that control? Absolutely not. Jesus gave up his control once in eternity at the cross. He completely gave it away. But his absolute power and authority returned to him in his resurrection. But what about mankind? Coming right back to us, we incurred a great debt, a great loss. We lost the deed. And we see that played out every day in our world. Crime, rape, abuse, incest, acts of terror around the world. We do not have control of this world. We cannot control this world. Even the greatest of governments, even the greatest of world rulers right now cannot control what's going to happen. Who knew that Ariel Sharon would be lying in a coma even as we have this Bible study? Who could have foreseen that? As he broke from, in Israel, the Likud party, I don't know if you follow this, the politics of this, and forming a new party, a party that was all about giving away land, and I think it's really interesting right now, little side note, it's interesting to me that as you watch the news, they're saying that Pat Robertson went way out of bounds saying that Ariel Sharon is being punished by God. Did you hear what Pat Robertson actually said? He did not say Ariel Sharon is being punished by God. What he said was, Woe to anybody who would give away land that is God's in the first place. He didn't come right out and say, Now obviously there's that inference there. And if you ask me my uh, opinion and position about Ariel Sharon being in a coma right now, all I have to say is that God is in control and God is going to make happen and do what He needs to do in the Middle East. Because the land is His. But it's funny how the news immediately spins things and says how you know judgmental Pat Robinson was being. Actually, Pat Robinson said some really nice things about Ariel Sharon. Anyway, back to what we were studying here. We lost the deed. And why? Because there's an evil banker. Not Frank. <laughs> Frank's not evil. One a banker who is temporarily holding the title over creation. And he has tried time and time and time again to call our loan. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 tells us he is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul says if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us in a familiar verse, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, or in this case to foreclose on. 
And so the obvious answer to the meaning of this scroll is the title deed to earth. The not so obvious answer, by the way, to this scroll is interesting. It's the title deed also for the land of Israel. Representing also that title deed for Israel. Why Israel? Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us something interesting. It indicates that Israel at some time future will sign a seven year peace treaty with Antichrist during which halfway through the devil will call in that loan. Will break that treaty. Seven years. Seven seals on the scroll. And when living Israel finally comes around, God will be standing at the ready to pay off the debt and to redeem the remnant, just as he has promised. But only, and listen to this, only after the seven seals are broken, as we'll see, the breaking of these seals unleashes the fury of the tribulation. The fury of the tribulation, which I will say one more, and I believe emphatically, is not for the church. I received an interesting email just today um, it, talking about this, and it, it continues to be controversial in the church. There are those who do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, who don't believe that the church is going to be saved out of the tribulation. And one of the reasons, and this was actually a new one for me as I read today, one of the reasons is people saying that Jesus says we're going to have tribulations. Well, of course we will. And please understand, as we teach about the rapture of the church and being pulled out and saved from the great tribulation, that is not a guarantee that you will not go through tribulations. A quote was given in this article from Corey Tinboom. Corey Tinboom, who, who said, you need to tell those people in America who believe this pre-tribulation stuff that tribulation happens. This is, you know, Corey Tinboom of the story of the hiding place and who went through incredible tribulation here on earth. Tribulation will happen. But understand there is a difference between tribulation and the great tribulation. There is a huge difference between tribulations on earth and, listen to this, the wrath of God. The great tribulation is the pouring out of the wrath of God. And 1 Thessalonians 5, long about verse 19, I believe, tells us that we were not destined for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we will have tribulation. And when your life gets hard, don't let your faith falter thinking, Oh, I, I didn't think I was going to have to go through this. Yes, you will. I guarantee you will. If you stand for Christ in this world, you are going to face some hard times. As we began talking about this morning, you're going to go into the wilderness. That's the place where we're forged and we're tested by fire. Where the tough times strengthen and grow our faith. And that's a good thing. Tribulation little t versus tribulation or wrath. Tribulation big t. That's something that the world has never seen. And when it begins to happen, as we get back in a couple of weeks to Revelation chapter 6, there is nothing like it. It's horrifying. Well, back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, going on. We see that uh, John is writing, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Notice the angel does not say who is willing to open up to break the seals. He says who is worthy, not who is willing. Lots of people in history have been willing. Nebuchadnezzar was willing. Alexander the Great was willing. Genghis Khan was willing. Charlemagne was willing, Napoleon was willing to break these seals, to wrest control of planet Earth. Hitler was willing, 
I think men like Bin Laden, Zarqawi would probably attempt to go at it if, if given the opportunity, but the question is not who is willing to open up this seal. The question is who is worthy? Who is worthy? And John looks around. Clearly no one in heaven could open it. No angels. No previous humans. Obviously nobody on planet earth was worthy to open this up. No human being alive. And nobody, absolutely nobody under the earth, no human being dead, (laughs) is able to open up this scroll. So do the math. It all adds up to nobody. As the angel calls out, who is worthy? John looks around and he realizes with horror, nobody. Verse 4, look at this. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Ever have one of those dreams that was so intense and so realistic that you woke up in tears? Have you had that happen to you? This is what's going on for John. Only it's not a dream. It's not a vision. It is something so real and so palatable that John is weeping. Literally in the Greek, he was sobbing convulsively. When he realized that this this silly little scroll, seemingly meaningless scroll with these seven seals on it, I mean, okay, so no one could open it. No big deal. No, he is sobbing convulsively. He is weeping. Parents, do you ever sit and wonder what will happen for your children in the world if it's allowed to go on another 30 or 60 years? Do you worry for them? I think about how things are changing and how much time has has turned even just in the last generation. It was a generation ago in 1939 that Clark Gable shocked the world with a single word. I don't know how many of you were here at the time, but when Gone with the Wind first showed in the cinemas, Christians boycotted the movie because of one word. Frankly, Scarlet, my dear, I don't give a... Yes. And you said it. (laughs) You know what's what's funny about that, Alex, and for us today, what's funny about that is it's a phrase that is so common and so casual, we've heard no big deal. And yet Christians wouldn't even go see the movie at the time. It was so offensive. And this year, Brokeback Mountain is hailed as an Oscar favorite. And it's selling out in theaters. Movie about two gay cowboys with an R rating for sexuality and nudity. And I am absolutely shocked. When that started being advertised, I could not believe it. You know, every time you think, ah, they can't go any further than they've gone, they go further, don't they? And this is the culture in which we live. Welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I wonder how long this world can even go on at the current rate of decline. The darkness seems to be getting thicker and deeper around us. And meanwhile, John is sobbing. He is weeping convulsively. How long, Lord, can this go on? This title deed is held in foreclosure. Nobody can open it. Things are bad. Gang, John cared about the things that God cared about. John looked at this. He had some understanding. And he's weeping. He's upset. He's worried. And he knew then what we know by now. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. Who is worthy to open the scroll? scroll, Watch this. Three images of Messiah. The one who is worthy. Image number one. Verse five. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. I love this. You're going to see every now and then throughout the book of Revelation. There's an elder. There's a shepherd who is guiding John. Who asks him some questions. Who leads him to the right direction. Who points him to Jesus. And as this morning we talked about elders, 
if there's any one primary thing any shepherd in a church should do is to point people to Jesus. And that's what he does. He says, stop weeping and behold, image number one, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Image number two, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So image number one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Matthew chapter one, Luke chapter three, they both tell us that Jesus' lineage traces right back to Judah's tribe. In Genesis chapter 49, Israel begins blessing his 12 sons and he says the following, Genesis 49 verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What's that mean? Shiloh is a word for Messiah. And so as he is blessing his sons, Jacob makes this prophecy. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah. Authority, rule, power will not leave the tribe of Judah. Judah is the tribe of the kings until Messiah comes. The scepter will not depart. Some of you know this story in spring of roughly A.D. 12. During the Jewish feast of the Passover, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us something amazing. He tells us that Rome removed the right of the Jewish people to carry out capital, capital punishment. Capital punishment. Since the Noahic Covenant, the Jewish people had always believed this right signified ultimate and independent rule. Even though they were somewhat under the, the uh, oppression of Rome, as long as the Jewish people had their own leadership within... As long as the Sanhedrin could rule, as long as the Jewish rulers could mete out capital punishment, they at least felt like the scepter had not departed from Judah. However, on this day in A.D. 12, Rome removed that right. You no longer have authority to kill those who have committed crimes against your law. The scepter departed from Judah. We're told that on that day, rabbis filled the streets of Jerusalem wailing and weeping and freaking out and upset for Messiah had not come. But it was on that very same day in history that Jesus, at age 12, sat in the temple in Jerusalem, blowing away the minds of the scribes who were sitting there, talking about things no 12-year-old boy possibly could know or understand. Shiloh was right there. He came right on schedule. And I think that it's such an amazing picture of how we do the same thing. How we in our lives will work ourselves up into a dither over nothing. We'll weep, we'll wail, we'll freak out, we'll worry. We'll say, oh no, how can we handle this? And Shiloh is right there in the town. He's sitting right there in the temple answering questions, challenging, bringing the truth to light. And we're out in the streets of Jerusalem. Oh no, Shiloh hasn't come, Messiah's not here. And he is here, right in our midst. He is right among us. The lion of the tribe of Judah. But he's also called the root of David. One is called the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, quote, the Lord our righteousness. That's Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, a secret name 
the name I believe Jesus will be called during that millennial period. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 15 tells us in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 then say to him thus says the Lord of hosts behold a man whose name is branch for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord by the way the indication is that Jesus himself, when he comes, will build the millennial temple. It will be built by the hands of Messiah. Verse 13 of Zechariah chapter 6 says, Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And finally, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 tells us, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's David's father, in the line of Judah, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. All of these prophecies... Describe the lineage of Messiah. That he would branch out from the tribe of Judah. That he would branch out from David. By the way, some of you know, you Bible students, the word branch is Netzer. Netzer, from which comes the name of a familiar town, Jesus' boyhood home, Nazareth. The branch, the Netzer. He will branch out. But Revelation 5.5 calls Jesus not the branch, but the root of David. Indicating that David came from Jesus before Jesus came from David. And watch this. Speaking of the millennial kingdom, the Lord declares, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. We talked about this recently. I'm not going to go into it uh, in depth tonight. But Jesus proceeded from David as a son, but he preceded David as his Lord. Because Jesus is eternal. Revelation 22.16, Jesus himself says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I'm both. I came from David in that line. I preceded David. He came from me. For I am, he says, the bright and morning star. So Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. But read on. Because in light of these first two images, the third image is the most stunning we've yet seen. Verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. A lamb standing as if slain. The third image here of Messiah. The word, by the way, for lamb here is literally rendered pet lamb. It speaks of a little pet, of innocence, of sweetness. If you think up, if you can call up in your mind a picture of a lamb, it's a pastoral picture. This creature, part of the reason I think lambs were uh, created in the beginning, was to make a grassy meadow or a hillside that much more beautiful or peaceful. If you're driving down the road and you're in a pastoral setting and you see sheep out on the hill and you see a little lamb, what's the first thing you do? Oh, isn't that cute? It's so peaceful. Reggie was asleep in my office this week on Friday afternoon as I was working. Reggie, our little dog, curled up in his little dog bed, eyes closed. He wasn't tearing up slippers. He wasn't pooping on the carpet. He wasn't making messes. He was just sleeping. And I'm typing away and I look over and I saw Reggie and I just... There's something relaxing about that when they're asleep. You know, those little cute, sweet little pets. And Reggie was... It was just wonderful to see him there but splatter his blood all over my office. And you get a completely different scene. Rip him open. 
bring him in maybe after a tragic car accident in which he's been hit and torn almost apart. Put him in that dog bed and you get a clearer picture of the lamb who has been slain. Not this sweet little pet, but this lamb sacrificed. Have you ever seen a lamb sacrificed? I was given a, a, a series of slides when I was uh, early on in youth ministry and I had no idea what happened to them. I wish I could get them back. But it was of a lamb sacrifice. And it started out with, as I described, these pastoral beautiful pictures of lambs in the field of this one little lamb surrounded by flowers, green hillsides. The next picture was the lamb's head being held up with a knife at its throat. The next picture was the knife having been pulled across the throat. And picture after picture got worse and worse. To see the blood literally just pouring out of this sweet pastoral creature. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. This is the picture that John sees. This is the, the image, the understanding. And I'm told that in Jerusalem, at the Passover, the blood would flow ankle deep in the temple. To see these sweet, harmless, pet-like creatures ripped open, torn apart for the sin of the people, only served to remind the Jews how bloody and horrific their sin truly was. And so here's John, a Jew, by the way, a Jew who had seen sacrifice, who had experienced it, now seeing Jesus, not only the Lion in the tribe of Judah, not only the Root of David, but the Lamb standing as if slain. But this Lamb that was sacrificed on Passover and so many other times during the sacrifices of the Jewish people served to prepare that people for an even greater horror than the horror of their sin. John chapter 1 verse 35 tells us again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said behold the Lamb of God that designation given to Jesus early on but when John the Apostle saw Jesus the Lamb of God there in heaven he saw the only thing in heaven it's been said that is man made and that's the wounds on the body of Christ the wounds of Jesus Isaiah 52.14 tells us just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And it's this disfigured, this marred, this wounded Jesus that ultimately will call it, cause all of Israel to mourn. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says they will mourn, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It's this wounded lamb that will cause also the entire earth to mourn when they see him. Matthew 24 verse 30, at the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, all the tribes of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And why will they mourn? Partially because at that point, when planet earth sees Jesus coming in his glory, at his glorious appearing, they will be absolutely freaked out. They will recognize the depth of their sin, the rejection of the one who could have saved them, but they will also see, I believe, the wounds. They will see the wounds. And they will understand that Jesus did die for their sins, though so many rejected that. The wounds remain. Zechariah 13.6 One will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. My friends, 
the nations will see these wounds and they will realize where they came from and they will mourn. And gang, John looks up at this slaughtered lamb and I think we place so much emphasis on physical beauty in our world but throughout eternity we will be drawn to a different kind of beauty. A beauty of a wounded lamb. And I do believe that every time we see Jesus in heaven we will see the nail prints in the hands. We will see the scars for all eternity, a reminder of the depth of His love for us, how far He was willing to go, the lengths to which He would go to save us by His, only, by his own blood. Now something else interesting about this lamb, you may have caught this, it has seven horns and seven eyes, which is an unusual picture of a lamb. We know these are figurative, by the way, and you will know things are figurative in the book of Revelation because John will tell you they are. Every time you come across something that seems a little out there or strange or metaphorical, you'll know it is because John will say, oh, and by the way, these eyes represent or this hor these horns are, and he'll do that throughout the book. There are other places in the book where he'll describe something and he will not call it a metaphor and he will not say it means anything else, and in that case, it's literal. That's what it is. But in this case, we have a couple of metaphorical pictures that John gives us, the seven horns. Seven horns. Number one, in the seven horns, it's the number of completion, but it's also the symbol of salvation. Seven, that biblical number of completion. But horns, horns are the symbol of salvation. I never thought about this before. It's interesting. Luke chapter 1 verse 68 tells us the following. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of David, his servant. A horn. Psalm 148 verse 14 tells us, He has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all his godly ones. Even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him, praise the Lord. And Leviticus chapter 25 verse 9 tells us, You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound a horn all throughout your land. Biblical students, what does that special year, what does that horn kick off? What year is that? What year is that? The Jubilee. That's right. The horn is blown. The symbol of salvation. The symbol of liberty. The symbol of redemption. As the horn is blown. A release from slavery. Rest from work. Restoration to the land. The horn blown. That symbol of salvation. Number two, the seven eyes. The seven eyes speak of complete vision. Again, that seven being that number of completion. But now we're looking at vision. Vision. Seven eyes. Perfect vision. In other words, Jesus is the God who sees. Remember, we're studying this, looking back, learning from John, telling us about things that are going before us. John was also writing to a people immediately who were experiencing intense persecution. Some of the worst days, the bloodiest days in the history of the church were happening when John wrote Revelation. And he is sending a word here about this lamb who was slain, this lamb, lamb who brings the salvation with the seven horns, but the lamb who has seven eyes. Gang, he sees what's going on. He knows what's happening. He is aware of your circumstance. He hasn't missed a thing. He is, as Hagar called him, El Roy. El Roy, the God who really sees. Genesis 16, do you remember the story? Hagar is driven out by Sarah. She's given birth to Ishmael in an illegitimate birth because Abraham and Sarah both lacked faith at the time. So Hagar and her son Ishmael are driven out. 
But the Lord sees them, He saves her, and at that point she called Him Elroy, the God who sees. And we need to know that God is never blind to the circumstances of our lives. He knows you're sitting here freezing to death tonight. He's completely aware of it. So am I. Let's move on. Number three, the seven spirits. The seven spirits speak again of the Holy Spirit. We saw this back in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2. Looked at this. The seven aspects of or ministries of the Holy Spirit. You can read about in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. Seven horns. That perfect salvation. Seven eyes. That complete vision. And the seven spirits speaking of the perfect nature of the Holy Spirit of God. And all this rests on the Lamb who was slain. Now in these images, interesting, we see something astounding. A perfect interplay between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All represented together here in the same place at the same time in a way we have not seen before in Scripture in Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 7. And he came, he being the lion, the root, the lamb, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Wait a minute. When we were studying Revelation chapter 4, we saw the one who was on the throne. Do you remember the, the jasper? And, and the ruby color, the white color, the red color, that picture of Jesus seated on the throne, wasn't that Jesus who was seated there? But now the Lamb, Jesus, comes to the one who's on the throne, Jesus, and takes the scroll from His hand, the one on the throne. Jesus now is coming and taking from God the Father who is on the throne. But you said Jesus was on the throne. Yes, I did. Why? Because they were both on the throne. How is that possible? Because the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Yes, He is three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But He is also one. How does that make sense? It doesn't in our minds. It's one of those things that you'll wake up midway through the night and, and part of your brain is kind of drizzling out of your ear because you've thought too hard about this. Just understand, Father, Son, and Spirit, all three seen in this picture, all three interacting beautifully, perfectly together, all at the same time. And gang, I'll say this again. To say that Jesus is anything less than God is to not only deny Jesus, but is to deny God. Amen. He is one and the same. Jesus is God. Which is the reason for the next thing that happens in this chapter. Verses 8 and 9. Going on here. Verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, remember those are the cherubim, and the 24 elders, we see representing all of God's people, they fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And, and they sang a new song. They sang a new song. Quickly notice something before we go any further. Two things in the hands of the elders. The first thing they were holding were harps. Harps. Literally ten-stringed harps. For the harps being talked about here in the Bible, it was a ten-stringed instrument. I tell you that because this is what John was seeing. They were holding harps. Harps was ten strings. And what do you think of in the Old Testament when you hear the number ten? The ten commandments. Commandments. I think it's an indication of the law. The law. These ten-stringed harps are at least, if nothing else, a reminder of the law. Now, now listen, the bridge is a grace-driven church. And I hope if you haven't heard that by now, you hear it over and over that we preach and teach because the Bible preaches and teaches the grace of God that saves us. 
We believe we're saved by God's grace, rescued by the wounds of the Lamb, and this is not of ourselves, Paul says, so that no man can boast. It's the gift of God. But there are too many people in Christianity today who would throw the law out with the bathwater. Well, if I'm saved by grace, I don't need the law, so I'm not going to the Old Testament. I'm just going to read the New. I'm just going to focus on the new things, just on the grace. I don't need to hear about law. I don't need to hear about Leviticus and holiness and all those things. It's unnecessary. I'm under grace, not law. I can watch any movie, read any book, listen to any music. I can do whatever I want because, hey, grace saves me. Don't forget David's words. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You may say, well, Rick, what's the connection then between the holy law and the hearts? And I would put it to you this way, that holiness is the music of heaven. Holiness is the music of heaven. We will sing and worship and praise in a spirit of holiness. You and I, gang, we're going to be completely holy one day. We're not going to have sin hanging off of us. We're not going to have sin that we try and tuck away so that no one sees it. We will be completely holy as we worship God in heaven. Right now, our lives are a choir rehearsal and it's not always pretty. In fact, a lot of times, one of the phrases we use a lot with the worship team is, that's why we call it rehearsal. (laughs) We'll be playing along, and I'll pick on Hank because he never hits a bad note, but let's say we're playing along and he hits a really bad chord, and we stop and look over at Hank and we'll laugh and say, that's why we call it rehearsal. We rehearse so when the time of worship comes, we can play better. We can not get in the way. Sunday morning comes and, and the band plays. Hopefully by then we know the songs well enough that we're not stopping halfway in between and going, oh, hang on a second. What was that? It was an F sharp minor. Okay, let me play that. And we figure it out then. No, that's the wrong time. It's rehearsal that we rehearse. It's that time that we work it out. We're in choir rehearsal. That's what this life is. We are rehearsing. And gang, on Sunday mornings when we worship here, we are getting ready for the worship in heaven. Amen. It's not perfect here. I know that. I've sat by some of you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not perfect here. And we don't always get it right. But we will. We will worship in holiness. The second thing that they're holding is not just the ten-stringed harps, but they're holding golden bowls full of incense. Golden bowls full of incense. And what is held in these golden bowls? Look at it. They're holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Ever wonder if your prayers are all heard? You ever prayed something and you just don't feel like God has responded? Gang, your prayers are more than heard, they're kept. I want to read you a quick story, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 and verse 5. It tells us in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was, or daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, 
in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Why? Because it was all about prayer. As the incense went up, as the priest working in the holy place would light that incense, he would be praying there before the Holy of Holies, just the side of the curtain, lighting that incense. The people gathered all around. It was a very solemn and beautiful time as they would lift up their prayers. But I wonder, when I think about Zacharias, this man who had no progeny, no child on which to pass on the family name, no one after him and Elizabeth, his wife who was barren. I wonder how many times Zacharias went in there, lit that incense, and in his prayer said, God, could you give Elizabeth a child? Could you bring us a son or a daughter? Could you bless us this way? I also wonder at what point he stopped asking. At what point for Zacharias going in there just became about the fact that there are some prayers that are just never answered. Maybe some prayers that don't quite make it out of the temple. Some prayers that God never really hears. Well verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. By the way, this is how we know he was praying for Elizabeth to have a son. Because his petition had been heard. And you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Then he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Listen, I pause here just to quickly remind you of something. God does not lose your prayers. They are kept safe. They are held on to, and I believe they will be answered. But where are they held on to? Where are they kept safe? Back in Revelation chapter 5, in golden bowls in heaven. Your prayers are kept. And there may be things you have prayed all your life, and for some reason they just have not been answered, and you don't understand, just like Zacharias offering up prayer after prayer after prayer. But God hears, and God knows, and a time is yet coming when all prayers will be answered. Now, I've said that I believe the church is present in chapters 4 and 5. Here is where you'll see why. Going on in verse 9. Remember, we've got this great gathering here. It says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. One of those indications, verse 10, of the reigning and the ruling during that time of the millennium. And it's very specific, they will reign upon the earth. Not they will reign generically, they will reign metaphorically, or they will reign up in heaven. They will reign upon the earth. Again, this new song, this song that is sung, is the song of redemption. 
The elders here are singing Redemption's sweet song because these are the people who have been redeemed. They know firsthand the worth of the Lamb to open the scroll, to break the seals, and to redeem the title. And I believe that we will be present at the breaking of these seals. I think we are some of those who are being quoted here. Why do you say this, Rick? Look again. Worthy are you to take the book and the book and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Who are the redeemed? Those who have been saved out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But watch this, verse 10. You have made them. The Greek word there is ego. Ego. When Jesus says in another place, I am, he says, Ego, Ami. The word is a personal pronoun. What's translated, you have made them, you have made ego. This is not like, let go my ego, we're not talking about that. Totally different thing. This is a personal pronoun. In fact, the word is a first person personal pronoun. And I believe it's incorrectly translated them. The King James Version got it right. Listen to how it's written in the King James. You have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. How do you know that church is in heaven in Revelation chapters 4 and 5? Well, part of the reason is the church, the redeemed, are singing this song. John's in heaven. Remember, the tribulation has not started yet. Remember back in chapter 4, the first couple of verses, we see this picture of John being translated, caught up to heaven. We spent a lot of time several weeks back looking at the rapture of the church and what that looked like and how John was a picture of the church. We talked about the elders, symbolic of the church proper in heaven, those who have been caught up. And now we see these people singing. They are people who are clearly the redeemed and they say, you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. See what difference a single word can make? And how important it is to track things closely in Scripture. If it's them, if the word is them, you made them to be a kingdom, it refers to the redeemed as someone other than those who are singing. But if it's you made us to be a kingdom, then it is the redeemed who are singing in heaven at this time. I think the church is there. And I love reading stuff like this because it's like, wow. That's a great quote, and I'm one of the ones singing it. <laughs> We're reading about it now. We're going to sing it then. So it's a good idea to go ahead and memorize it now so you won't have to read off of someone else's choir book. <laughs> now, going on. We're almost done. Hang in there. When the Lamb takes the scroll, when the Lamb takes the scroll, all worship cuts loose in heaven and on earth, and it boggles the mind. Watch this. I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. Myriads and thousands of thousands were talking about multiplied millions of people singing out with a loud voice. Verse 12, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13 goes on. This is great. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now don't miss what's happening. Notice that at this particular moment when the Lamb takes hold of this in this scene of drama, takes hold of the scroll, grabs it. He is the one worthy. He can open it up. Notice what happens. Worship breaks out in heaven heaven, but worship also breaks out on the earth. On the earth. 
Well, who's singing on the earth? Certainly not those who rejected Christ, those who don't believe. Who's singing on the earth? The Greek word in verse 13, and every created thing, the word is katizma. Katizma, and it is not human creation. It literally speaks of created things, in this case, animals. Amazing. Will there be animals in heaven? People ask that question. My wife has asked me, what do I think about that? Because she just loves that little dog. My mother-in-law has asked, you know, what happens to Oscar? We'll talk about that another time. No, I love that little dog too. <laughs> will there be animals in heaven? Listen, I'll tell you real quickly. I know at least two animals that will be in heaven. There will be horses. Because we see in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus followed by those who are with him, which we'll talk about who they are later, all ride. They ride on white horses. So at least there's some idea, there's some picture of a horse in heaven. I also think there will be cats in heaven. Because they got to get the strings for the hearts from somewhere. <laughs> but pause for a moment. Think about this. Hang on. Listen. Listen. Pause for a moment. You caught that. <laughs> After this moment, when we've been whispered away, we're caught up we're there we're in heaven Jesus takes the scroll we begin to praise and worship all heaven breaks loose in praise and worship and everything the Bible tells us created creatures on earth is <laughs> mind boggling stand up and shout to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever can you imagine in that moment Spot? <laughs> Fluffy? How weird, how bizarre, and yet how, how perfect. This strikes us as very funny, but listen, gang. After the time of the rapture, when the church is pulled out, and the Bible indicates that along with the church goes the restraining influence, the Holy Spirit leaves planet Earth, this will be a very scary place to be. Frightening. And though we laugh at this and think, oh, how great, how horrifying for those who have rejected Jesus and never given God opportunity to give His grace to them to live in a world that will be so different. The spiritual realm, as we're about to see when we get into chapter 6, will be more tangible, will be more focused, Human rebellion will be more outspoken and God's hand will be heavier than at any other time in all of history. And you've got to ask the question, where am I going to be when all of this happens? When the Lamb grabs that scroll and begins to break the seals, for by the way, each seal that is broken opens up the wrath, opens up the tribulation. With every seal comes one thing worse than the thing before and things get very bad on this planet. Well, we'll get there. Not next week. Not the week after, will we? No. It'll be two Sundays that we won't meet. We'll meet three weeks from tonight to go back and we'll start at that point, Revelation chapter 6. We will go into the tribulation from a study perspective and see it there. The last verse tonight. And the four living creatures, they kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. 
Amen. This is the name Jesus calls himself back in Revelation 3.14. The Amen. I am the Amen. And it means yes. It means affirmative. So be it. Jesus is our great Amen. Jesus is the reason why we have nothing to fear when it comes to all of the tragedy and trauma and tribulation, capital T, that will come after these seals are opened up. Jesus is the great Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For as many are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, and therefore also through Him is our Amen to the glory of God through us. All God's promises, including the title deed of earth itself, and our very redemption are Amen in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So I ask you, where will you be? Have you accepted the Lordship of Jesus over your life? I believe most of you sitting here in this chilly barn tonight have or you wouldn't be here. But gang, we have two options when it comes to the Lord. We can either join in and sing the song of the redeemed, being a redeemed people, having been caught up to heaven, or we can listen to the song of the creatures on earth, having missed that catching up. And being in a very dark world, there is coming a day when all creation, even those who chose to reject Jesus at one point, will take a knee before the Lord, confessing that Jesus is Lord. You may be familiar with the verse. We sang it this morning. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we confess that to you tonight. We say Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We understand, Father, as much as we can at this point, that the, the title deed, Lord, that you, you have the authority, you have the control, and you are the one, Jesus, worthy to open that deed. And through things being paid off to restore what you originally intended, that man could live on this planet and actually experience this world the way it was intended for a time. Father, we thank you for your words in this chapter. We pray that you'll give us time to pour over these and think through these over the next week and continue to bring us back to this truth that Jesus, you are our God and our Lord and we worship you. And we thank you for loving us. Praise you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray together. Amen. Now one last thing. As we get into the tribulation in a few weeks here, and even tonight as we talk about the horror of the world at that time, what tends to happen is we think about a couple of things. How great it is that Scripture says we, will not, we are not destined for wrath. How wonderful it is that we will be people who are saved from that time. But the other thing that tends to happen, especially for those of us with compassionate hearts, which is everyone here, we begin to think about friends of ours. And we think about family. And as much as we want to exult in the idea that we're going to be there, we're going to be saved, we also at the same time find ourselves, our hearts kind of going down as we think about those who may not be. Let me encourage you that the motivation that comes from this is not to feel sorrowful over those people in your lives that you know don't know Jesus but to be motivated to share with them about Jesus. Not to keep your mouth closed. Not to think, oh, it's a family gathering, and if I say something, it's just going to cause a ruckus. Dang, start causing a ruckus. 
You start sharing Jesus. And if it's offensive, so be it. Maybe at some point down the road, a conversation you've had that upset a family member will spin that family member around as they realize that you love them enough to bring Jesus up over and over and over. And if it costs you a friendship, so be it if it saves a soul. That's what this is really about. So don't be depressed. Don't be sorrowful. Don't be worried. God's more concerned about the souls of our friends and family even than we are. Let's just be instruments to bring His name before them over and over. Amen? Amen. Have a great week. Go get warm. (laughs) Thank you. You did great tonight. God bless you guys.